0: Please subscribe for Designers of Paradise at iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm speaking today with Kathleen Draper, the U.S. Director of Ithaca Institute of Carbon Intelligence. And it seems to me a really kind of timely conversation. We're looking, we're sitting here in the beginning of August now in a week where the world news has... I won't say it's been permeated because there's been political stuff that is, is grabbing most of the attention, but it is certainly, I think, receiving far more coverage than, than years past in terms of the just um, global impact of uh, warmer temperatures and um, the connections with global warming, um, incredible floods in Southeast Asia, uh, forest fires across the Arctic. Um, and, of course, California. And that's, that's just the tip of the rapidly melting iceberg. So, so to me, that seems uh, very timely um, that we would be having this conversation around something called biochar, which Kathleen will explain more to us, and which, in my mind and um, obviously in Kathleen's, holds fantastic promise for helping to bring that carbon back out of the atmosphere where it's an overload and put it back into the ground where the earth has a system capable of handling that. So welcome, Kathleen. Thank you. Um, maybe you could just uh, start off by giving us an idea what you do at Ithic Institute and... Um, and then an introduction into the promise of biochar. And, and I guess we need to define that too, because nerds like me are, are are rather versed on it, but I don't expect all of our listeners to know what that means.
1: Okay, so first off, what is biochar? Biochar is basically carbonized organic material. And by carbonized, I simply mean it's, it's treated in a heat an environment, sometimes called pyrolysis, sometimes called gasification, and it burns off almost all of the volatiles until you get to a very stable carbon substance. That's biochar.
0: So is, is it, some people describe that as almost a mineralization. So that kind of stability is different from, for instance, what happens when you mulch or when you, when you dig compost into the soil, you've put the carbon... The carbon content of the plant material in a form of compost into the soil, but in the normal microbial consumption of that, a lot of that carbon is re-released into the atmosphere and biochar, my understanding of biochar is it much, much more long term in, in um, in its storage.
1: Exactly right. The, the scientific terms that they throw around in the biochar world are labile carbon, which goes back right into the atmosphere within a few years, or recalcitrant, which means the bulk of that carbon stays either in the soil or some other material, such as concrete, which I think we'll talk about a little later.
0: Okay, so recalcitrant, like if you have a child that doesn 't want to do what she 's told <laughs> <laughs> The knees are locked, the feet are dug in, and she 's being recalcitrant
1: there you go i hadn 't <laughs> thought of it quite that way
0: not budging cool um, so give us give us an idea what you 're doing with the institute then
1: So the Ithaca Institute was started in Switzerland by one of the pioneers of biochar research, uh, Hans-Peter Schmidt, and it is basically a group of both researchers and practitioners. So we like to take what we find positive in labs and actually put it into practice. So we have people in Switzerland, um, in the U.S., in Germany, in Nepal, and and we collaborate with a lot of other academics on, on different types of biochar uses, markets, that sort of thing. So it started in agriculture, but we're looking at using biochar in building materials, uh, in packaging materials, and all sorts of non-traditional uses for carbon.
0: So my sense of that is, and I, and I would agree with those strategies, um, you know, from my own reading and my own, and my own practice, if, if biochar basically is carbonized product of biological processes, Right, so we, so we 've got plants growing in the fields we 've got trees growing in the forest they're in, as their normal metabolic process they're taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and using it to build their cellular structure, right We harvest that, we put it through this pyrolysis process, um, which is a very, very specific kind of way of burning things and we're able to then keep the carbon which they have previously harvested from the atmosphere so we have a net reduction by that process because that is no longer free-flowing or free-floating as it were Um, and now it's available for storage so my, my, my study of biochar started with a lot of the work which was showing that this is a good way to rebuild the, the character and the quality and the life of the soil itself. But then I also started thinking, well, if really the intention is to take as much out of the atmosphere, much of the overload out of the atmosphere as possible, then we need to think of a lot of other ways to use this stuff. We need to incentivize this process. So I'm really going to be interested in 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 what you have to share with us around things like putting it into concrete, for instance, or using it in filters, different ways that that we can actually take this material into other industrial processes, and therefore, uh, you know, create more incentives for people to be producing it.
1: Right, so so as you said, the, the, the intake of all that carbon is the photosynthesis side and, and the stabilization or, or the uh, prevention of, of it going back into the atmosphere is, is the carbonization stage and the biochar stage. Um, one of the things we're finding though is that even though you can carbonize all sorts of materials, sometimes those materials may have things in it that you don't necessarily want to introduce into soils. So I'm talking about heavy metals for the most part. And so if you're carbonizing certain materials such as um, manures or human biosolids, you're not getting rid of those metals. They're in fact uh, more concentrated in the biochar. So those are the kind of materials we don't necessarily believe ought to be put in the soil. There's other things you can do with them. And concrete or asphalt additive is, is one example of
0: that. So, for instance, I, I know there's not, or, or maybe you'll correct me on this. My, my impression is, is there's not many um, cities which are taking this uh, seriously yet as a part of their waste management strategy. But we could be creating biochar from, for instance, urban sewage. Yes, Right, And so we're recapturing and and stabilizing the carbon content of that. But as you say, we've also got this cocktail of heavy metals, especially since we're at the top of the food chain, we're also accumulating everything which has been added into that system before it got to our plates um, and then concentrating it in the sewage.
1: Yeah, and more and more communities are restricting what you can do with that sludge or the biosolids if even if it's treated in a digester some of the things that are in there are are going to get out into the environment and so a lot of people don't want to put that in soils especially if they're using those soils to grow food so a lot of it's getting sent to the landfill at at high cost so taking that drying it and then converting it into a biochar substance makes a lot of sense from a waste management perspective as well since you can decrease the volume of it by more than fifty percent.
0: This is this. Sorry. This is all quite complex, I think, for people who maybe just just hearing about this now. Um, we'll come to the book that you're working on in a while. Um, but in the meantime, uh, if people wanted to sort of do a crash course on this, where would you send them?
1: Well, uh, there's a couple of places. Obviously, the Ithaca Institute has some resources under the Biochar Journal. We have some articles there that are written for a non scientist. The International Biochar Initiative has a huge repository of research available. I also host uh, various webinars on different biochar topics. You can find out about those through the International Biochar Initiative. Uh, or you can come to the conferences that are sprouting up all over the world these days. The next one's in the U.S. in Delaware in a few weeks, but Europe often has them, as does uh, Asia.
0: So I'll post um, when when we put this live um, online. We'll make sure that there's links there for Ithaca Institute and for IBI, um, and and probably a few other things as well. Um, let's 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 bring it. Back to this week 's headlines and and the climate chaos, which is finally starting to be acknowledged, uh, I hope not too late. Um, take us through the, the the hope, the promise, the prospects the possibilities of incorporating biochar in a an integrated and um, more holistic strategy towards turning around what, what we've dumped into the atmosphere?
1: Well, I think one of the things that differentiates biochar from some of the other drawdown technologies that are being discussed is, one, it is, it is very scalable. At the lowest level, you can make biochar in your backyard with a soil pit kiln, we call them, or you can have an industrialized scale uh, as we're starting to see in in cities like Stockholm, where they're taking all of their, uh, some of their green waste, carbonizing it, putting the heat into a district heating system, and then they're using that biochar to help plant urban trees and, and perennials. And what they're finding there is not only are they sequestering carbon, they're not doing it for that purpose. What they're doing is they're trying to increase the lives of the trees that are dying because of compaction. And, as an added benefit that they had not even anticipated they 're finding that the quality of the stormwater that goes into the municipal wastewater treatment plant is much improved because that biochar is holding on to some of the toxins that uh, get into the stormwater from the road system, uh, and the quality or the quantity of the stormwater is reduced as well so so they're finding all sorts of benefits um, to biochar production and use in urban environments. But I think the other thing to, to that differentiates biochar from some of these other technologies is that in rural environments, in developing world scenarios, it can help um, satisfy some of the United Nations sustainable development goals, such as reduced um, hunger, renewable energy, uh, cleaner air we're trying to convince farmers that instead of burning crop residues right in the field to quickly convert it to the next crop, carbonizing it with these mobile units makes a lot more sense and they don't get fined, but they can convert it into a a slow-release fertilizer if they blend in manures and and other nutrients. So I think, like I said, it's very scalable and, and it offers multiple benefits beyond carbon sequestration.
0: So, if I was a backyard gardener and I was thinking, "Well, this sounds kind of intriguing, but um, i don 't know if I have time to to you know mess around with this um, i, I 'm not really really convinced what, what are some other What are some other reasons that I might want to make my own biochar or maybe get together with uh, a group of other gardeners and and make a quantity and then divide that up amongst ourselves um, beyond just the fact that we care about the climate and we want to do our part?
1: Okay, I'll give you an example. One of the things I have been doing in my yard is it's covered by a certain invasive species. And it's one thing to just cut it. But if you don't get rid of it beyond cutting it, it's going to keep proliferating. So burning it is one of the few options you have to prevent its spread. So I, I carbonized this honeysuckle which has taken over my backyard. Uh, so that's a very good reason um, to, to convert something. But it's as easy as when you have a bonfire with your friends, if you just treat the fire in a specific way to keep it from going to ash, you can actually make biochar when you're cooking marshmallows so again it's it 's not really done for the purposes only of making uh, stable carbon, but you have all these other benefits in sharing a fire with friends so
0: it, it, it could be as simple as how you can constri- how you actually stack the fire or how you light the fire
1: and how you feed the fire yeah
0: uh-huh uh-huh um, you mentioned that Ithaca was, was based in Switzerland, was it? It started. Yeah.
1: Yes, really.
0: And so what brought you were you part of the, the setup in Switzerland or, or were you have you all been based in the States?
1: Nope, I'm based in the States. And a few years ago, I think it was back in 2013, I was part of the US Biochar Conference Planning Committee, which was held in Amherst, Massachusetts. And I headed up one of the streams for the conference and was getting speakers from all over the world. And one of the people that I had as a speaker was Hans Peter Schmidt. And and I was so impressed with everything that he was doing. He participated via video conference that I said to him, you know, if ever there's an opportunity to collaborate from across the pond, I would love to be a part of that. And so ever since then, we have been collaborating on different initiatives that he's got going on. I led a group of people over to a project that he had in Nepal uh, several years ago, three years ago. Um, And I'm hoping to do the same for a project. They have just started in Cuba. Uh, It's a nationwide project looking at all of the um, excess biomass available in Cuba. And then we'll look at different ways to carbonize it and different end uses for each of those different materials. Uh, and then I'm hoping to bring um, a, a group down there next year. To see how so,
0: so, so, so a project on the scale of a nation, albeit a Caribbean island, um, and not the size of the continental United States, for instance, but some, you know, a, a, a nation, a national project involving biochar, is the incentive also around uh, having an alternative uh, way to generate more energy? Because I know that's a byproduct.
1: Absolutely, yes. Whether that's heat, energy, or electricity, that's very much a part of the financial and um, environmental uh, value proposition for biochar.
0: Are you finding that, that um, entities such as, well, in, in the case of Cuba, a nation, but maybe in the case of other areas, they could be cities, are they, those who are showing interest, are they coming with this idea of kind of combined energy and carbon? At, as as a goal
1: some are it's really interesting how diverse it is in terms of what triggers different uh countries or cities to be interested it it, it can be waste management maybe the primary thing it can be heat uh it can be simply um you know trying to um figure out what to do with all this excess biomass they have um, in in terms of turning it into something that provides jobs. So everybody has a a slightly different perspective on it. It's as much about reducing air pollution uh, from the crop burning as it is creating a material that can mitigate a problem with metals, heavy metals in their soils.
0: And in in terms of the nations which have signed up to the Paris Accord uh, for climate, um, any of them taking this seriously as as part of the formula for, for kind of meeting their goals on carbon sequestration?
1: Uh, the one that I recently found out is taking it the most seriously is actually Norway. Uh, I was leading a group of 40 people on a biochar study tour in Austria and Norway sent 11 or 12 people from a a big multi-year project where they're looking to understand how much biochar production and use can help them meet their reduction targets. Um, and, And I think they wanna tell that story beyond Norway, but first they're really trying to understand what they have in terms of available biomass, how much energy they can get out of it, and, and what they can do with all that biochar.
0: Now, people will say, well, I mean, there, there will be a somewhat cynical response from some, uh, given that, that you know, Norway is, is, is still cranking out the oil. Yeah. Um, how, what, I, what's, what's your sense of that balance? Uh,
1: about Norway in particular? I, yeah. I, Probably see the writing on the wall in terms of fossil fuels and they're trying to figure out what the next thing is after that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think China is also coming on very strong when it comes to biochar, but again, for very different reasons. It, it, it doesn't seem to me that they're putting the climate aspect first. Um, and that's okay with me because, like I said, there's lots of problems that biochar production and use can solve. Uh, for some, it's all about the the carbon story, but for others, it's, it's not so much that.
0: It's interesting. I just saw an article today um, about a new study predicting that by the end of the century, there are large areas of China which may become functionally uninhabitable because of the heat. I don't know if you caught that yet. Um,
1: no, but there's a, a study tour next month in the drylands part of China, which, you know, they're inching towards desertification, but they've been doing large-scale biochar trials there that have been showing very promising results. So I don't know that it can mitigate heat, but it can certainly help mitigate the food security issue over there.
0: Interesting. Yeah, um, something that I think we kind of jumped over in, in terms of the complexity of this, and, and I'd like to just come back to that. Briefly for, again, for the listener understanding, you know, some people have talked about biochar as being like a coral reef in the soil. Um, And its ability to not just sequester carbon, but it's also its ability to to hold and re-release both nutrients and water um, is part of the benefit that it it offers to farmers. And I, I suppose foresters as well in the longer term kind of basis, um, that connects up with a comment that um, someone else I interviewed last week mentioned in terms of uh, doing regenerative agriculture, and particularly tree crops, in uh, western Massachusetts. And the way he put it so beautifully was the real question is what kind of agriculture Will help us to restore the water cycle, and I believe in the case of China and in, in the case of semi-arid, but also in, in areas where maybe the water is released too quickly now, because we've disturbed the soil profile so much or compacted it so much. Um, this this ability of biochar to actually help regulate what goes on in terms of water movement, I think, is is significant and um,
1: yeah, in fact, in California, biochar is getting a lot of airtime, uh, and and that has to do with its in ability to improve water management, mostly on the drought side. Um, but uh, you know, they're they're pumping their aquifers dry there, and they they really need to figure out all sorts of ways to become more water efficient, and, and biochar is one of those strategies. On the other side it has shown some ability to reduce erosion in areas that have way too much water. So, you know, I hate to use the word miraculous, but it does have so, it's so versatile in terms of how it can improve soils, all different types of soils that face all different um, weather challenges. um, and, And it's improved a lot of different crops Um, mostly right now we're seeing a lot on the perennial side where it can get um, perennial crops into production faster, which, you know, those are the crops that have high value per acre. And so I think, I think we're starting to see a trend of people looking at putting them in vineyards and orchards and things like that.
0: Some of the work that I first came across from Ithaca was about using biochar in the vineyards.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I live in a vineyard area here and there's a few, uh, growers that I've worked with, and and they're very impressed with it. Uh, We still have the challenge of biochar being expensive right now because of, uh, it's still not widely available in my region, although that's changing. Uh, So you really have to focus on the crops where it's a higher uh, income for farmers so that they can afford this right now. And vineyards is one of them.
0: And you're based where exactly?
1: In the finger Lakes part of yep. Western New York,
0: okay, okay, so yeah, another 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 vineyard part of the country, but not maybe what everyone would classically imagine, like Napa Valley.
1: no, no, and we have different constraints here. you know we have a lot of water here, but we are having more uh, longer periods between precipitation, uh, and we don 't irrigate here at all, so farmers need to have something that helps get them over that extra week of drought. Um, because they're not putting irrigation in yet, but they need to, you know, do something to help their uh, vineyards. Yeah, right?
0: so it's, it's that kind of sponge-like quality of of the biochar particles that can help with that, right?
1: Mm-hmm, exactly.
0: Uh, a nice image I like to use with people when I'm trying to explain that is if if you can picture like a microscope or even just a highly magnified image of a piece of wood, or, or even you know, dried plant and, and you see that cellular structure and then imagine that being maintained or retained after it's been carbonized, mm-hmm. then it, right. it, it, re, it really has the porosity that you would find in a piece of sponge mm-hmm. and, and it continues to provide that physical, the physical function of, you know, that's possible when you have a porous structure. Yeah. We're gonna take a break now. So stay tuned, we'll be right back. Designers of Paradise is made possible in part by Mind & Media. Over the last quarter century, the writers, producers, storytellers, and media specialists at Mind & Media have spearheaded a multitude of engaging and complex communication campaigns. Mind & Media is a proud supporter of the work being done by the wonderful and passionate people of Rasa who are engaged in the creation of a regenerative future for generations to come. Find out more about Mind & Media at mindandmedia.com. That's M-I-N-D-A-N-D-M-E-D-I-A dot com. And now, back to Designers of Paradise and host Eric Van Lennon. Welcome back to Designers of Paradise. Today, I'm chatting with Kathleen Draper from the International Biochar Institute. So you mentioned that um, you know as we discuss this, and I'm and I'm I'm realizing the kind of short amount of time we actually have for these podcast interviews, and the complexity, you know, which for me is part of the wonder, you know, because I, I mean you said like you don't like to use the word miraculous and I use it all the time for biochar myself. I think it's pure (laughs) magic. Um, but it's nice to have magic substantiated. Um, (laughs) and and you mentioned that you, um, was it webinars that you run online as well for, for, to help people understand this?
1: Yes. So the last one I did was on, uh, using biochar to mitigate, um, Diseases. So, I interviewed a, a woman who is from Israel and she talked about the research side of that. And then previously, I'd done one with two speakers on using it in mine land reclamation. I've done them on using it with the biogas industry. Uh, so, all different topics
0: okay and and we 'll we'll put a link there for that as well um, when when we publish this, so that people who want to follow some of your more in depth um, explanations can go, can then go there. You said that you're, you said that you and Albert Bates are working on a new book
1: yes it 's called Carbon Cascades. It should hopefully be out this fall. Uh, our publishers Chelsea Green Publishers out of Vermont, and what we wanted to do is talk about the non-soil applications of biochar. So we cover a lot of ground, so to speak, uh, in terms of using it to displace other materials that may have a high carbon footprint, maybe non-renewable or just um, costly. So it's being used in everything from um, super capacitors to displace uh, um, rare earth metals like silver to asphalt where it's helping to improve certain properties of asphalt in terms of um, heat resistance and rutting resistance. And even things like rubber tires, which currently use uh, carbon black, which is made from a dirtier kind of uh, sour gas. So we're finding that researchers are really um, taking (laughs) to heart this renewable kind of carbonized material and looking at all the different things you can do with it.
0: With that, and that's brilliant. As, as we said at the very start of this, uh, you know, the more that we can incentivize people to use this material, then the faster we'll be able to draw the excess carbon out of the atmosphere and, and, and work back towards restoring the natural balance that the planet maintains. Um, that doesn't give us you know, a pass on continuing to produce and burn fossil fuels, <laughs> But as we rein that in, and it seems like that is happening simply because the economics of alternative energy production are starting to tip the balance. Um, If we went, you know, far more uh, consistently and and thoroughly into um, using the power of plants to draw down the carbon and then using the power of technology to fix that carbon so that it doesn't re-escape so quickly... Uh, we still have a chance. Uh, I think, you know, maybe if not in our lifetimes, maybe your children's lifetimes, um, if we start now, yeah, (laughs) we have a chance of, you know, bringing this balance back into a way which is conducive to life.
1: Right. Well, and we do see a huge increase in biochar activity around the world. I mean, is it fast enough? I don't know. But it, it's certainly changed in the last 12 to 18 months. We're seeing a lot more technologies come out that can produce it on all different scales. And we're seeing this, this growth in why people are interested in it. Like I said, it's, it's, it's not so much about the carbon. Sometimes in the era of Trump, we whisper about that. But now it's about waste management. So it's, it's, it's taking off.
0: Like most things have a tipping point, don't they? Yes. And, and do you think, in, from what you're watching, because I'm watching a lot of stuff at the same time and, and you're really focused on this, um, do you feel like, like biochar understanding and interest has reached some kind of threshold?
1: In my neck of the world, definitely. It's, it's so interesting to see. I live not far from Cornell, and I always say Cornell is like one of the best biochar research um, universities in the world, but they really focus mostly on soils. And then another university near me is is now hugely interested in it from a food waste management perspective. Uh, so, you know, three years ago, few people beyond Cornell in my region had heard about it. And, and this is not just my area. I'm I'm on the board of the US Biochar Initiative and I hear that from all the other folks. And, um, and in certain parts of the world, we're hearing about it as well, particularly Africa, where they have some, you know, food shortages and growing challenges. They're very interested in it. Um, so, yeah, I do think it's getting off the ground.
0: One of the, one of the early um, projects I saw involving biochar was some people in Sweden who were working on producing a uh, either low or no smoke home cook stove, mm-hmm. which produced biochar as a byproduct. Mm -hmm. But the incentive or the, uh, you know, the gateway drug, in a sense, you know, uh, for for doing that had more to do with reducing indoor pollution.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Like I said, there's these different triggers that get people pulled into this thing and and oftentimes they don't know what to do with the biochar. You know, you say, "Yeah, you got this great byproduct, but what do you do?" And so we're now showing people, "Yeah, you can use it to filter water that contaminants from, you know, pesticides, or you can put it in your soils, or you can make bricks out of it." There's there's so many things you can do with it.
0: Um, take us take us a little deeper into the, some of some of these things that are really surprising, like tires and concrete and asphalt and. And um, you know the, the kind of heavier industrial processes.
1: Well, we're, we're that we're still in the very early stages of understanding. You know how much? What are the right recipes? What what are the properties within a biochar that matter for these different end uses? You know, there's there's chemical um, properties, there's physical properties, and for each different end use something else matters. So for filtration, it's, it's very often surface area. For um, concrete, we're, we're not quite sure yet. Particle size has a lot to do with it, but one one quality about biochar, at least initially, is it can repel water or be hydrophobic. Um, and that's not necessarily what you want when you're making concrete. So we're we're trying to understand how to change these properties to make them more useful um, and improve certain qualities within, say, concrete. We're finding that it can improve things like tensile strength. It can reduce curing time. It can provide self-healing um, in the right doses with the right kind of biochar. But that's kind of technical, and we're still just learning about that. Same thing for asphalt. Same thing for uh, replacing carbon black blackened tires. That's still early days. but but super promising. So it gives me a lot of hope.
0: Self-healing in concrete.
1: <laughs> I know. That's where the miraculous, is, it does come in.
0: <laughs> uh, so, so what does that look like?
1: Um, it has something to do with the, the, the matrix that biochar uh, helps build within the concrete, that it can either repel some of the uh, things that cause the... Uh, the cracking, but it can also help reduce spalling when concrete is uh, exposed to fire. So
0: So a product of fire can help make something else more fireproof in a sense.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, Yeah. that's right back to the miraculousness. (laughs) Um, You'd also mentioned to me that there's an upcoming conference.
1: Yes, it's being held in Wilmington, Delaware. And the interesting uh, aspect of this conference is there's a lot of uh, focus on stormwater management for the Chesapeake Bay area, which has been polluted by, uh, you know, farms that have just way too many nutrients going into the water there. So their big focus this year, which is unusual for biochar conferences, is you know how can we best use biochar to Um, heal some of these problems caused by agriculture.
0: I like that a lot. I'd like to see a lot more conferences with that really hands-on kind of local focus as part of the bigger, you know, the bigger conversation.
1: Yeah, what's interesting is one of the workshops is by a group of folks from the University of Delaware that have been using, doing testing along highways of using biochar to absorb some of the toxins and the salt that uh, washes off roadways, so that it doesn't do further damage to the environment. And and they they benchmarked using biochar against twenty plus other stormwater management techniques. And it came out in the top two or three, I want to say, from a price perspective. Um, and they even said in some cases it's the only option because other options require a lot more land than is ever going to be available. So I find that sort of thing really promising.
0: I think that's incredibly promising. I love the fact that it's happening around the Chesapeake Bay too because it's got such a. I tend to think it's well known, but I'm also aware that, again, you know, just uh, people who kind of nerd around on 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 these sorts of things. You know, we have a different view of the world and, and a different flow of information. So maybe not so well known, but the you know the 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 amount of coordination and focus and intention um, and intensity that has gone into recovering the watershed for the Chesapeake Bay has been absolutely amazing over the last twenty years. Right. I mean, it's such it's such a um, it's it's a project which really shows what's possible and of course that estuary is one of the mo- the richest in the world you know before it was destroyed so there's there's a an economic and some kind of an environmental justice issue too, you know, long deep and deep justice, multi, multi multi-generational justice in terms of doing everything possible to bring this back to health. And I love the fact that biochar is now coming into the, into the, um, the formula for doing that. And, and in such a way, like I said, where it becomes part of the agenda of what could otherwise just be an informational kind of event.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: I think it's absolutely stupendous. What is the date for that conference?
1: August 20th through the 23rd.
0: So that's coming right up. That's like in three weeks, really, isn't it? And and are you one of the organizers? Are you just inputting into the the content?
1: I have been part of the uh, planning committee. I'm hosting one of the workshops on how to understand biochar analysis and how to modify biochar properties. And I'm giving a talk on biochar use in concrete and composites. And I'm moderating and I'm on a panel and different. Beautiful.
0: Things. And is, is, this, is this being pitched more at professionals and academic researchers? Or is this something the layperson would gain from as well?
1: It's interesting. They just published some demographics of who's already signed up, and uh, I think they've shifted away more and more from academics, though we may probably have about a quarter of the attendees from academia, but that there are a lot of folks from government now, the DEC, uh, and a lot of people looking to enter the biochar business or industry, either from the you know, production side or sales or use. Uh, so, yeah, it's a pretty diverse group.
0: Beautiful, beautiful. So this is, this is the point in the interview where I like to ask two things. Um, first, I'd, I'd love to know what drew you into this so deeply in the first place.
1: <laughs> so, so I call this my biocharmed charmed moment. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, several years ago, I went back to do a master's in sustainability at Marlborough College in Vermont. And I was reading really deeply on, you know, the problem. And, and I was reading really deeply on the potential solutions and read a book on the top 10 solutions at the time. And the only one that I understood was biochar. <laughs> Everything else was very techno wizardry, kind of beyond what I thought I could ever really grasp. Not being a scientist, um, I came from the world of consulting but I also grew up on a farm. And this, this seemed like a very simple approach that was scalable. And uh, little did I know how new it all was, um, but I decided that I, it was time to shift gears in my life and do something that I could be proud of at the end of my life. And so I jumped in whole hog to this, this world of biochar and tried to figure out where I could play a role. And um, here I am seven or eight years later.
0: <laughs> so for you the attraction to biochar was the practicality of it. Right. It ex-
1: ex- existed for thousands of years. You know, we're we're reinventing it in a way that fits with our current culture, but indigenous cultures have been making biochar for thousands of years. So <laughs>
0: And yet going back to Cornell, which, which you'd mentioned earlier, uh, that was my first really introduction to it. was Johannes Lehman's work. He's the professor mm-hmm. there, who um, brought it to the world's attention, I think, um, based on his studies of Amazon soils. But very interesting to see now that they're finding biochar in, in West Africa, for instance, I don't Japan, know if it's China, Japan. Yeah.. yeah. It's
1: all over. Yeah.
0: Incredible, huh? So it's, it's been in our toolkit for a long time and we've just, like so many things, kind of lost touch with it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. I was in Peru not long ago, watching them cook a meal in this traditional indigenous method called Pachamanca. And as I'm watching them, I was like, that's how biochar was made thousands of years ago. And they just don't call it that. You know, it's, it's just cooking to them in a way that preserves the carbon and it doesn't go to ash. And then they throw all their, you know, extra stuff in there and, and it builds this really rich soil that lasts for centuries.
0: Absolutely fantastic. If you were to look, this is my second question that I always ask towards the end of these, um, if you were to look down the road 20 years from now, or actually if you could imagine yourself standing 20 years from now looking back, what would you like to have see have happened by then? So in other words, 20 years from now, all things have gone well from your perspective from your perspective and in your not just in your work but the impact of your work what would the world look like what would your world look like
1: well i think it's all about transforming from linear take make waste thinking to circular economies and industrial ecology and and that has to you know, revalue carbon in a way that doesn't waste it and and that just continually reuses it and and finds ways to use it more than once and and find ways to you know not send things to the landfill but to to reinvent it as a stable carbon that can be used for a hundred different things depending on how you make it. I mean to me that's the world we're evolving into. And, and we just show people that there's so much you can do with things besides sending it to a landfill. That's just such a waste.
0: <laughs> you know, what's lovely about that is that the, solu- the problem is in a sense, the solution. And in this case, we're talking directly and, and very specifically about carbon. Mm-hmm. You know, and we talk about the need to decarbonize our economy, and yet here's biochar, which through recarbonizing, yeah, actually offers us a way out.
1: Right, Albert and I talk about it in the book as as turning carbon from friend to from foe to friend. You know, we just have to look at it with a different lens. Um, And understand that this, this is the solution. You know, it's not the problem. We we need to figure out how to keep it with us longer.
0: That's a beautiful moment to end on this, I think. Um, Thank you so much, Kathleen Draper.
1: You're welcome.
0: And we will be in contact um, when we go through the editing for this. uh, We'll make sure to put in a a number of links there for the listeners so they can inform themselves further. And uh, best of luck with the conference. I wish I was closer by. (laughs) And good luck with the book. I'm I'm really, really uh, pleased to hear that Chelsea Green is continuing to just, you know, support the good. The good thinkers and 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 the good doers um mostly in the states but even beyond
1: yeah um, and, and, I are too.
0: <laughs> and we'll be in contact thanks so much okay take care now you too bye now thank you for listening to designers of paradise i'm your host eric van Lennep. Join me next week as we bring you another eye-opening interview with the people who are revolutionizing the way we produce our food. Indeed, the people on the front lines of Designing Paradise. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. To learn more, go to www.rasa.ag. That's www.rasa.ag. If you have any ideas you'd like to suggest, such as folks we should be talking to or a specific topic we should cover, hit me up with your ideas on Twitter at Greenheart. That's G-R-E-E-N underscore H-E-A-R-T, Greenheart. We'll see you next week.